I'll be reading this morning from Matthew 24. You have that. You can turn there. Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. And Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he answered and said to them, Do you see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. And at that time many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, it is he who shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world for a witness to all the nations. And then the end shall come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word and all that you have revealed of your person and of your ways. And God, we want to again just have your mind on these words that you have. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been looking at the, um, the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ. And we started out by looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where it says that the Lord will appear in the air and will call to him all those who are his, with the dead in Christ rising first. And then 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 where it talked about we are not destined for wrath, but this wrath of God, this judgment which is coming upon the world, is upon them, not upon us. And then Second Thessalonians chapter 2, that speaks about the revealing of the Antichrist, or the man of lawlessness, as Paul called him. I don't want to spend an enormous amount of time on, the, um, on this topic. I just meant for it to be a, a brief series but one of the key passages in all the Bible uh, that people go to for the rapture is Matthew 24 and 25. These two chapters go together. They are Christ's discourse from the Mount of Olives or called the Olivet Discourse. And especially at the end of chapter 24, where Jesus speaks about one being taken and one being left. And so many will go to this passage as um, a rapture passage. That's not my take on it. 
for a number of reasons, as we'll see. But we need to set the, the setting to understand who Jesus was talking to and what exactly he was saying before we get over to one was taken and one was left behind. A number of years ago, Patsy and I were visiting with some folks, and um, it didn't go very well. And I really had the sense, that though these people um, were religious and went to church, that they did not know Christ whatsoever. And I kind of lost it with them. And I told them they don't know, that you don't know the Lord, you're a bunch of hypocrites, um, you are blind, you think you're saved, and you're not. You're in danger of going to hell. And then we left their house. <laughs> and as we were leaving, Patsy was going, well, they really did have a nice house. <laughs> and I go, and as far as that house, it's going to burn just like they are. <laughs> now, that's not true at all. I didn't do any of that. <laughs> but Jesus did. <laughs> And I say that because it helps to put into setting, into context, what this chapter is about. Jesus, in chapter 23, has pronounced his woes upon the Pharisees. And he called them repeatedly hypocrites. He said that they were sons of hell. He said that they were fools, blind men, serpents, and a brood of vipers. That's what he said. And then he pronounced his judgment on Israel, on Jerusalem, and says, I'm not even coming back to this place until you people recognize who I am. And as they were walking away, going up to the Mount of Olives, they looked back into Jerusalem, and all those magnificent temple buildings were there, and Jesus is going, and as far as those buildings, they're going to be torn down too. That's the backdrop and setting of this passage. He's not happy with Israel. So in other words, the questions that give rise to this whole discourse have nothing to do with the church, but everything to do with Jesus' judgment, indictment upon the nation of Israel. So when we come to chapter 24, Jesus says, verse 2, Do you see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, he's probably still fired up. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? When is Jerusalem going to be destroyed? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of of the age? Now, there's three questions here, but really in the disciples' mind, it really just comes down to one thing. They understand that if the temple is going to be destroyed and Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, then that must equate with the end of the present age and the beginning of his kingdom. So the end of the present age and the beginning of his kingdom, they saw as basically being one thing. And so the present age for them was not the church age. They weren't even thinking of that. In fact, when you go back and read the Gospel of Matthew, there's only two times the church is even mentioned. And it's very brief mentions. And so one was in relation to Peter, the other is in relation to um, being confronted over your sin, take it to the church, Matthew chapter 18. So So there's nothing, there's no discourse in all of Matthew on the church. It's starting, 
what it is composed of, none of that. It's really not until we get to the epistles and even to the book of Acts that the church begins to be developed and, and talked about and the doctrine of the church explained to us. So what the age was that these Jewish men had in mind was the age that Daniel talked about. And that was the age of the Gentiles. Because the Jews, since the Babylonian captivity under Nebuchadnezzar, have been living under an age called the age of the Gentiles, where the Jewish people were under Gentile dominion. And that has always been the case ever since 605 B.C., when the first dispersion of Israel took place under Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel was given a vision, and he was told there's going to be a succession of kingdoms that are going to reign, with Babylon being first, and then he gives a list of the ones after that. The Medo-Persians, and they came, and then the Greeks, and they came, and then the Romans, and, and he lists them all. And then he says, at the end of that time, there is going to be a stone cut out of a mountain without human hands, and it's going to be hurled against the kingdoms of this world, those Gentile kingdoms. They're all going to be destroyed. And that stone is going to become a mountain. And a mountain is a figure of a kingdom which will fill the entire earth. That is the kingdom of Christ. So in the Jewish mind, when they hear the Messiah say, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed, they're immediately thinking, we're coming to the end. The end of the time of the Gentiles. And the king is about to establish his kingdom. This was still on their mind in Acts chapter 1 when Jesus has already been crucified, raised from the dead, but he's not yet ascended. And we're told in Acts chapter 1 for 40 days Jesus was with those men talking to them and he spent the entire time talking about the kingdom. The kingdom of Christ which will be over this earth for a thousand years. And so they start asking the question, right question to ask, if he's going to be talking about the kingdom for 40 days, is it at this time that you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know. That must have been a disappointment. You spent 40 days talking about the kingdom. And so the obvious question is, is it now? It's not for you to know. And that will fit with Matthew 24, because Jesus is going to say, no one knows the day or the hour. But the context here seems to me very clearly to be Jewish people wondering because of Jesus' recent statements concerning the Jewish leadership, the the city of Israel, the capital, and also even the temple buildings. Because of all those statements, they're going, is it now that the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Christ, is going to be established on this earth? And so with those questions in mind, Jesus begins his answer. Now, the first question is, when will these things be? Meaning, the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus doesn't answer that question here in Matthew 24. You have to read Luke to get the answer to that. That's the parallel passage. So, in Matthew, and again, Matthew is very uniquely Jewish and and very much concerned with the kingdom. Because Matthew, again, is the gospel of the king. And so when Matthew records what Jesus said, he's going to focus on the kingdom because the king came to bring a kingdom. And so he just skips over the first part of when Jerusalem's going to be destroyed because Matthew's emphasis is the king and the kingdom. And so he goes, let me just, so he starts answering the second question. And that is, 
what is the sign of your coming and of the end of this age? And that's what Jesus now begins to explain. Now, if you believe the rapture comes at the end of the tribulation, you're a post-tribulationist. And to hold to that view, you have to say that everything Jesus says in this passage concerning Israel is actually concerning the church. But if, you're, if you just are, are handling the text honestly, there is no mention of the church anywhere in these two chapters. So I started out this series by saying one of the reasons that I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture of the church is because there are no tribulation passages that mention the church. Not a single one. And this is a passage that mentions the tribulation. But the church is not mentioned. He will speak of Israel. He will speak of the elect. But he never mentions the church. Now, quoting from someone else here, in order for, post-tribulational, for the post-tribulational view to find support in the Olivet Discourse, post-tribulationists need to demonstrate that Jesus is explaining the future of the church, not the future of Israel. And see, that would, on his, right in the face of it, would be contrary to Matthew. Matthew isn't really concerned with the church. Matthew is concerned with the king and his kingdom. That's why Matthew is such a perfect bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's why God put it first. I believe God, we're superintending Matthew coming first. It is the most Old Testament book of any of the books in the New Testament. More Old Testament references in Matthew than any of them. And so it was of great concern to the Jewish people what is happening with the prophecies concerning the coming king and his kingdom. And so the post-tribulationists need to say Matthew 24 is about the future of the church when in fact Matthew is concerned with the future of Israel. Otherwise, the Olivet Discourse could give no information about the rapture. If the church is not in here, then the Olivet Discourse doesn't say anything about the rapture. Thus, post-tribulationists argue that the disciples in this passage represent the church, not believing Israel. The issue is not about to whom the discourse is applicable. All of the Bible applies. So understand, I'm not saying there is... When, when the scripture says all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, all means all. So the Old Testament was not written to Christians. It's not written to the church. The Ten Commandments was not given to the body of Christ. But there's much that we can learn from the Old Testament and that we should even apply from the Ten Commandments. But we are not under the Ten Commandments. We were never under the Ten Commandments. And so, but that doesn't mean that there's no application to us from the Ten Commandments. The same thing's true from Matthew 24. It is about Israel, not about the church. But that doesn't mean there's no application to the church from these passages. There's much application. Now, when we start looking into this passage... As Jesus begins to explain, first thing he's going to do is give nine signs of that, that the end has come. And with those signs, um, many of them 
are specifically related only to Israel. Now, for example, he's going to say, Luke picks up this, Matthew doesn't record it, they're going to persecute you in their synagogues. Well, that doesn't pertain to the church. That is a uniquely Jewish context. And then he goes on and he says, there are going to be many false Christ that arise. Don't follow them. Well, why would he say that to the church? See, we're not looking for Jesus to come for the first time. We're not even looking for Jesus to show up on earth and say, I am the Christ. That's not what scripture says. So how can a Christian be a Christian who believes Jesus has? Because you're a Christian. Why are you a Christian? Because you believe God came in the form of a man. And he died for our sins and rose again from the dead. So you are not looking for Jesus to come for the first time. And concerning his second coming, you're not looking for him just to show up on earth one day and say, I'm here. Because the scripture says he's going to show up in the air and we will be gathered to him immediately. So how is this written to the Christian? False Christ are going to come, don't be led astray. I don't think so. That is, it is the Jewish people who don't believe Christ came and who are looking for a Christ, you see? And he says, don't be led astray. And then false prophets he mentions in this passage. And I didn't realize this until just studying this again this week, but when the term false prophet in the New Testament is always related to Israel, it is never related to the church. Not one time. Look over with me at 2 Peter chapter 2 for an example. In 2 Peter chapter 1, we're told that all scripture came by God through prophets. Okay? So that's chapter 1. And then chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people. What people? The people that the scriptures were given to. So, those, so during the time when the prophets were writing scripture, there were false prophets who arose. Then he says, just as there will also be false teachers among you. So he says, as a church, the people of God, you don't need to worry about prophets because they've already come and gone. The scripture is complete. And so there is no prophetic office any longer. Our concern is not with false prophets. Our concern is with false teachers. And so the term false prophet in the New Testament is consistently related to Israel, not to the church. Now, I know there are people today that claim to be prophets, and, but this is particularly a Jewish issue. Israel is looking for a prophet who is going to come ahead of the Messiah because they don't think John the, prop, John the Baptist was that prophet. They don't think Jesus was the Messiah. They are still looking for those things to happen. And so Jesus is saying to Israel, don't be led astray by these things. Also here in these first few verses, Jesus speaks about um, the abomination of desolation. That concerns Israel. 
Daniel prophesied of this in Daniel chapter 9. And he says this, this one, this little horn, is going to arise. This, this person that, um, that, that Paul describes as the man of lawlessness, that John describes as the Antichrist, he's going to come and he's going to take his seat in the temple. He will desecrate the temple. He will call himself God and he will persecute the Jewish people like never before. That is the man of desolation. And he is the one responsible for the abomination of desolation. That is uniquely Jewish. And so each of these things, persecution in the synagogues, um, abomination of desolation, false Christ, false prophets, even as he'll say, pray these things don't take place on the Sabbath. What has that got to do with the church? Right? Because we don't even have to keep the Sabbath. There's nothing in the New Testament that says Christians have to keep the Sabbath. It's just not there. And the Sabbath, by the way, is Saturday, not Sunday. But if if it's written to Israel, yeah, you better hope this doesn't happen on the Sabbath because nobody's traveling on the Sabbath. And so you can't get a bus out of town. The bus system is closed down on the Sabbath to this day in Israel. You can't travel on the Sabbath. That's what I've been told. And if everybody's not traveling and you're hoofing it on foot, you're pretty conspicuous. So you don't want this time of tribulation to break out on a Sabbath. That is uniquely Jewish. Even the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom is uniquely Jewish. So there are at least six things in this passage that don't make sense applied to all Gentiles, all of the church, but really makes sense applied only to Israel. So I think, contextually, all of the evidence is on the side of taking this passage of Scripture as not being written to the church, but it is written concerning Israel's future. Does it apply to us? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean it was written concerning us. So now... Jesus starts with some of the signs that are going to take place that would indicate that the end, the end of this age, the age of the Gentiles, has come. So he says in verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars, See that you are not frightened, for these things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. One scholar says that phrase, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, is what we would call world war. I don't know if that's true or not, but he would say that the end time began with roughly the beginning of World War I. And that the generation, and a generation can be anywhere from 30 years to 100 years, this one scholar says that the generation that, was, that saw the beginning, or basically 100 years since the beginning of World War I, 100 years later is when we would see um, Christ physically return to earth. I think he probably missed it, personally. Don't think that's what Jesus means by generation. But it was, it's probably correct that nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, is speaking of worldwide conflict and not local conflicts. 
But again, and then he says, and there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Now, there's two things, two ways that that pre-tribulational people like myself handle these verses. So there's no one only way to take this. One way is to say that these verses 4 through 9 or 4 through 8 are general characteristics of all the time from now through to the middle of the tribulation. Others take it, no, these verses are only the first half of the tribulation. Even if they pertain only to the first half of the tribulation, and that I would lean toward that myself. It is true that for the last 2,000 years, we have been seeing these other things take place. And, that ha- and it does seem to get worse and worse. We are seeing not fewer famines, more famines. Not fewer earthquakes, more earthquakes. From what I can read, the, that is a fact. There have been greater famines in the last hundred years than there have been in the first hundred years after Christ said these things. There have been more earthquakes in the last hundred years, one piece of research I looked at, than there's been in the previous um, over thousand years. And so, what, and so it could be that these are things that are just going to be building and building. But again, because Jesus is not talking about the whole age, but he's talking about the end of the age, I think it's better to say Jesus is specifically talking about that seven-year tribulation period that Daniel referred to as the 70th week. So there seems to be good parallel in that 70th week and what Jesus is describing here with the first six seals of Revelation chapter 6. One writer says this, The first seal was opened revealing a man on a white horse. Remember the four horses, the four horses of the apocalypse. That man on the white horse had a bow who went forth to conquer. The Lord Jesus shall come on a white horse, but this is not he. But it is a false Christ who establishes a temporary peace. What is the first prediction of Matthew 24? Many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ. The second seal was opened revealing a man on a red horse who would take peace from the earth. The second prediction of Matthew 24 is found in verse 6 and 7. Wars and rumors of war. Nations rising against nation. The third seal was was opened revealing a man on a black horse who had balances in his hand and a voice in the midst of the four beasts indicated famine. The third prediction of Matthew 24 is there shall be famines. The fourth seal was the op- opened, revealing one on a pale horse whose name was Death. And the fourth prophecy of Matthew 24 tells us pestilences and earthquakes. The fifth seal has to do with those who were slain for the word of God. And they are under the altar crying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell upon the earth? What is the fifth prophecy of Matthew 24? Then they shall deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you. So that may be what's going on here, is that Jesus is either, one, talking about the general characteristics for the next 2,000 years up to the middle of the tribulation, or he's only talking about the first half of the tribulation. 
I think it's better to say he's talking about the first half of the tribulation. But we don't know for sure. Now, look at this verse 9. Then. So there does seem to be a break here. After verses 4, 6, 7, and 8. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation. In the first half of the tribulation, the Jewish people are not being persecuted. Can remember, the tribulation begins with a peace treaty between the Antichrist and Israel. And halfway through that peace treaty, he breaks it. And that's when the persecution really starts. So for the first half, there's a lot of bad stuff happening on earth. A quarter of mankind is killed during that first half. But there doesn't seem to be any persecution, at least orchestrated internationally, against Israel. They have a three and a half year reprieve. But after that, they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. That again has been in part true of Israel for the last 2,000 years. Unfortunately, and it is a great blight on the church, there have been many, many persecutions that have, been take, that have taken place for 2,000 years against Jews because they crucified Jesus, Christ killers. I didn't really think that too much of that. But in the last couple of years, I've done um, some reading on this. And it is astounding how true, sadly, it is that virtually every persecution, and there have been many that have taken place against the Jewish people, have been in one way or another in the name of Jesus. But I don't think that's what Jesus has in mind here. I think here he's talking about Jewish people who have truly gotten saved. This is after the rapture, and the book of Revelation says there will be 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, that are going to go through the world preaching the gospel of the kingdom. They're saved. And Jesus seems to be talking about persecuted you, Israel, those that are, have placed their faith in me, you are going to be persecuted for that faith. Jews for the last 2,000 years have not been persecuted for their faith in Christ. They've been persecuted, and I, I don't believe it's the real reason, but in, they've been persecuted supposedly because of their association with the crucifixion of Christ. In verse 10, at that time many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, and why would lawlessness be increased? Remember 2 Thessalonians 2. The man of lawlessness has been revealed. The restrainer has been taken out of the way. The man of lawlessness has been revealed, and lawlessness is increasing. And because lawlessness is increased... Most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, it is he who shall be saved. Now that's a bit of a problem. Because it seems like a works salvation. If you don't persevere, you're not going to be saved. And this is where we need to understand 
what the gospel of the kingdom is. Look at the next verse. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations, and then the end shall come. Okay. So, first of all, the one who endures to the end, it is he who shall be saved. This is not the first time this statement's been said. Go with me back. We're going to slow down a little bit because it's a very important thing to, to, to nail down here. Go back to Matthew chapter 10. This is the first commission. It is not the great commission. There are two commissions in Matthew. Matthew 10 and Matthew 28. When you hear Christians today talk about the great commission... They mean the commission of Matthew 28, which is to all believers. Go out into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all the things that I've said. That's the great commission. This is the lesser commission. Okay? This was not to all the church. This was to the 12 disciples, and it included Judas. Okay? Judas was one of these people, so this wasn't just to believers. Even Judas was part of this commission. And so it says in Matthew 10, And having summoned his twelve disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And so then he tells them in verse 6, Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, only them. So the great commission is go to the whole world. So this is not the great commission. There's two commissions. And then he tells them, don't take any money. Don't even take a change of clothes with you. Fortunately, God doesn't tell us that with the Great Commission, right? Take no money, take no extra clothes, not even a suitcase. Two very different commissions. Now, still in the context of this commission, Jesus starts saying what's going to happen during the tribulation. Now, I'm going to ask him someday, what, are you just trying to confuse us all or what? Because this happens many times in Scripture. A prophet or Jesus will be just talking along and all of a sudden skip to a thousand years ahead. And you go, well, thank you. Why did you do that? This, may, this is where bad doctrine comes in because we don't catch the switch. So look where the switch takes place. Verse 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. I send you out. He's just been talking to these 12 guys. But now the you isn't them anymore. The you will be people living during the tribulation who are being sent out by Jesus to witness. How do we know that? Because look what happens. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the courts, and they will scourge you in their synagogues. That didn't happen to these men when they went out preaching. It didn't happen to them. Remember, they come back going... Jesus go, how did it go? Fantastic! <laughs> they wanted to do it again. Sign me up for another short-term mission trip. I mean, they were just going, it couldn't have been any better. I mean, we saw demons being cast out. We saw people being healed. There was not a word about persecution because it didn't take place. This isn't then. This is sometime in the future. Verse 18, they shall bring you before, you shall even be brought out before governors and kings for my sake. That didn't happen. Verse 19, but when they deliver you up, do not become anxious about what you shall speak or what you shall say, for it shall be given to you in that hour what you shall speak. 
Verse 20, for it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of my father who speaks in you. And brother will deliver up brother to death. And a father is child and children arise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. Doesn't that sound like Matthew 24? And then, and you shall be hated on account of my name, hated by all on account of my name, which he just said in Matthew 24. But it is the one who has endured to the end who shall be saved. Just like he's saying in Matthew 24. But whenever they persecute in this city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you shall not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. And that sounds a lot like Matthew 24. Only in Matthew 24, verse 14, that this will be, that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world and then the end comes. Okay, now, another place to turn. Go to Luke 21. This is the parallel passage to Matthew 24. Luke 21. And there are three times Jesus seems to be saying the same thing. Persevere and you'll be saved. Don't persevere and you won't be saved. Okay? So look at Matthew 21, 19. By your perseverance, you will win your souls. Okay? Hard verse. Hard for us to understand. Now look at verse 28. But when these things begin... We'll start at verse 27. And then they will see... The Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory, just as it says in Matthew 24. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Now, they're already saved. So what is their redemption? From trial, from tribulation, you see. So he says, by perseverance you will win your soul, your redemption is drawing near. So is he talking about losing their salvation? I don't think so. Now, there's a third verse here that it helps us understand what he's saying. Look at verse 36. Keep on the alert at all times, praying in order that you may have strength to escape. Put them all three together, and he's talking about persevering, enduring the tribulation. He's not talking about losing their salvation. He's talking about losing their hope. You don't lose your hope. He's about to come. Now, I want to read from somebody else here. The term gospel, gospel of the kingdom, literally, simply means, we all know, good news. Right? Good news. The gospel of the kingdom was the good news that the promised king was soon to appear on the scene to offer the promised kingdom. In such usage, the gospel of the kingdom was not primarily about salvation, but it was about the future. It was not soteriological, it was eschatological. The gospel of the kingdom did not offer a way of salvation but rather offered the hope of the fulfillment of Israel's eschatological promises, which contained within them the fulfillment of the soteriological hopes. There were two phases to John's preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. First, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Second, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The one was just as much a part of John's message as the other. In these two declarations, it may be stated that John proclaimed a cross as well as a kingdom. 
so it will be in the tribulation period. Now, let me read one more. I don't like doing this to you, but other people are just more articulate than I am. The preaching of the gospel kingdom. There is only one gospel of salvation. We're all in agreement on that. There's only one way to be saved. But there is a gospel of salvation and a gospel of the kingdom. But only one way to be saved. Just like there are two commissions. There is a lesser commission and a greater commission. There are gospel is used in two ways in scripture. It simply means good news. There is the good news of salvation, which pertains to Jesus' first coming. And there is the good news of his kingdom, which pertains to his second coming. You see? And so what, what Jesus is talking about is the gospel concerning his second coming, not the gospel concerning his first coming. These men have already accepted that. But now he's talking about the future when he comes again. So he says, there is only one gospel of salvation. There is only one way by which a person can be saved. And that is through faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God who loved man, died for him on the cross, and rose again. But here, the gospel is called the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of salvation will relate to the first coming of Christ as the ground of salvation. The gospel of the kingdom will herald the truth of the future coming of Christ when the saints will be delivered from their persecutions and the age of righteousness on earth will be inaugurated. So when the gospel of the kingdom is supported, is supported by the statement, he that will shall endure unto the end, the same will be saved. This statement of Christ must be interpreted contextually as referring to the deliverance of believers in Christ at the time of his second coming. That's why Luke 21 is so helpful. Your redemption is drawing nigh. They're already saved. So it's talking about deliverance from tribulation. The salvation that is in view here is not salvation from the guilt of sin. They already had that. But deliverance from persecution and the threat of martyrdom. So that's why it seems to be Jesus is saying The one who goes through the tribulation, Israel, Jewish believing people. Now this, I think, would also pertain to non-Jewish believing people during the time of the tribulation as well. He's saying to them, don't give up. Many of people are going to die during this time. Many believers will die. But that doesn't mean they're all going to die. In fact, he's going to say they're not all going to die. Don't give up. Don't lose your hope. The deliverer is coming. Your Savior is coming. And he will save you from this time of tribulation. And while that tribulation is going on, the gospel of his soon kingdom is going to be preached. Now, it's not going to seem like it. Can you imagine? I'm glad we can only only have to imagine. Going through the tribulation and seeing all that is going on during that time. It will not seem like God is winning. If you're a believer, it will very much seem like you're on the losing side. Seems like that sometimes today, doesn't it? It's going to be much worse in the tribulation. We will feel like we're on the losing side. I don't believe we're going to be there. But those who know him 
What have I done? Putting my faith in him. Everybody that I know has put, my, put their faith in him. They're all being killed. I can't buy anything. I can't sell anything. And they're hunting me like a dog day and night. And Jesus is saying, your Savior is coming. Don't give up. Continue to trust. Continue to hope. And continue to speak. And so the gospel will not finish going through this world before Christ will come again. Now, I thought we might be able to get through this whole chapter this morning, but I think we'd be here till tonight. So we'll come back to it next week. So let me just wrap it up by again just saying, I, though I do not at all think he is speaking to the church, clearly there is application for us. Obviously, one part of it is, Jesus knows what's going to happen. And he is in absolute control of everything. And we have no reason to panic or to despair. God's at work. I happen to personally think, and I, you know, I haven't given a lot of thought to it because it just happened, but this recent vote where England has voted to leave the European Union, I happen to think it's a very good thing. I kind of think it's a finger in the eye of the devil. That's just me being a radical Christian. And because the scripture indicates that we are moving toward a one world government. And, and when you have a nation like Israel, that is, um, like England, that is pulled out of its assimilation of nations, that can't help the agenda that we see presented in scripture that the devil has. And so God is perhaps given some time. Whatever it means... We know from God's word, he is in absolute control. And I remember one time sitting at the bedside of Major Ian Thomas. He recently had a heart attack. He said it was because of my preaching. Um, And I'm sitting by his bed in the hospital in San Antonio, and he starts telling me war stories. I wished I'd taped them. He was telling me stories that he had never told anybody. And because he just was like many veterans, they just didn't talk about a lot of the stuff that happened. But one thing he said has just resonated with me in the years since. He said, Charlie, things when it when it comes to war, it's all about extremes. It's either extremely boring or extremely exciting. You're either extremely fatigued or extremely rested. It's, there's no moderation. It's all extremes. But one thing I learned things are never as bad as they seem or as good as they seem. The truth is always in the middle. And if there's anything that these verses tell us, even when it is as bad as it could possibly be, it's not as bad as it could possibly be. The gospel is being preached, and people are coming to Christ, and Jesus is in absolute control in the darkest days of human history. I'll close this in prayer.